You ever felt like, uh, you ever felt like you were like woefully unprepared for something? You know what I'm talking about? Like a presentation or a sermon or something like that? You ever felt that? Oh no, just me today? (laughs) Man, I've had my two kids by myself. Single parents, you guys are the best people in the world. Uh, I just want y'all to know that. If if you've been a single parent or have ever experienced that, or maybe you uh, were raised in a single parent home, um, I'm just more and more thankful for my wife now that she's been gone for just two days than I've ever been more thankful for her in my life. Oh man! And don't, don't let me don't let me paint it that bad. Like my kids are amazing; they're just they're the greatest kids ever. But even still, without my wife at home, oh man, it was it got a little exciting at times. We can, how about that? We can say it that way. <laughs> Hebrews. We're talking about Hebrews today, um, and for the next several weeks, uh, we're starting our sermon series here. And uh, with Aaron and, and, and Bobby out, um, they asked if I could kind of open up what we're what we're talking about. So so we're, we're going to be taking some broad stroke like approaches to Hebrews. There's just like no way that we can look at it verse by verse. Uh, you guys would be mad at me. We'd be here for like eight hours. It'd just be ridiculous. And that's just one chapter. Um, we, we can't do that. It, it, so, so here's the challenge in that. Since we can't go verse by verse, necessarily chapter by chapter, uh, there's a challenge there for you guys to go this, this week, go home and, and read. If, you, if you're not already in a Bible reading plan, uh, or, or don't have some direction maybe on reading your Bible when you go home this week, uh, this is a great place to start. In fact, we've linked uh, the particular Bible reading plan, it's a Hebrews Bible reading plan, uh, in the YouVersion Bible app notes. So if you're following along in, U, in YouVersion Bible app, you can, you can catch it there. If you've got your printed Bible today, head on over to Hebrews. We're going to be in chapters 1 and 2 this morning. This book is like... It's pretty serious. This is this. If you've ever read Hebrews or know anything about this book at all, it, it's it's deep, it's rich, it's poetic. I mean, it's just a beautiful book, it, and it, it's it's difficult not so much because the topics are difficult to understand or because the theology is just so so deep and it's it's way over there on the eight foot end of the pool. No, it, it's it's not necessarily that. It's because the writing style is hard to grasp. Yeah, it, that's really what makes it difficult. Hebrews is the type of book where one chapter will pose an idea and then one sentence in the next chapter will answer that idea and it will go off onto another whole tangent. And so it's kind of hard to understand. And then even within the next chapter, ten verses later, it references what it referenced in the first chapter even though it answered it in, in verse 1. Verse 10 hits it just one more time to make sure that you understood. You get what I'm saying? It, just, it gets a little confusing just because of the writing style. So as you're reading this week, I'm just, I'm just telling you this not to, for, to discourage you from reading it, but as you're reading this week, maybe don't only go one chapter or five verses or whatever you're, uh, you, know, you know, normal, like the way you normally read. Maybe don't do it that way this time. Read a chapter, and if it's confusing, it might be because the answer is in verse one of the next chapter. Does that make sense? So keep going, kind of persevere through the chapters because it'll answer itself as it goes. So, so the reason we're taking a broad stroke approach to this is because it would just be impossible. It would just be impossible to look at every, all the complexities of... Okay, let me, let me, let's look at it this way. Uh, if I were to say to you, where were you on that day? You, you'd kind of know that I'm talking about September 11th because, because we, we understand that phrase. Where were you on that day? You, you would know what I'm talking about and you would be able to come up with a story, what you felt. It would be a surreal moment for you to kind of call back to where you were. Someone who's 10 can't do that. You know what I'm saying? 
someone who's 10, if I were to say those phrases, they'd be like, what day? What are you talking about? They have no clue. And so for us, that's a little bit like what it looks like for Hebrews. Hebrews is talking a lot to a specific people who understand a lot of the nuance of each of the things that the writer's talking about. Does that make sense? And so, and so unless you're, you're caught up with the cultural nuance of what he's trying to say in Hebrews, the writer, you're going to miss some of it. So when you go to read this week, when you go to read this week, just have a little Google search ready for you and ask, and ask a couple questions, okay? And that, did, that won't hurt you, I promise. It'll spend an extra five minutes in your study and it'll be more rich and more deep to you as you discover what God's Word has to say through Hebrews. So let me set you up for some success this week as you're reading by yourself. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is, it's awesome, okay? It's awesome. But all of Hebrews chapter 1 essentially says one thing. Jesus is greater. Somebody say, Jesus is greater. Mm, Y'all are with me today, okay. Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. That's going to be what chapter 1 is all about, is that Jesus is greater than the angels. And he's going to take all of chapter 1 to say that one thing. That's all of chapter 1. Is, is he's going to say that Jesus is greater than the angels, and then in chapter 2 he's going to answer some more of that question. Okay? Uh, and, so, and so let me set you up for some success this week, that Jesus is greater, he's greater than the angels. As you read chapter 1, don't be discouraged, don't be confused, because chapter 2 is going to then reference and talk more about it. And, and, and here's the thing, if you were to look at Hebrews kind of as a, as a whole book, you really could just say Jesus is greater. Somebody say it again. Okay, y'all are with me, I like it. So, so this book was written to, okay, book, this letter was written, we'll call it book from here on out because that's how we understand it, but this letter was written to religious people with a lot of religious baggage in their past. Okay, they love Jesus, don't get me wrong. Just because they have some religious baggage doesn't mean that they don't love Jesus. They love Jesus with their whole hearts. But they keep drifting back to the people that they were before they met Jesus. They keep going back to the old way of life, the old way of doing things, and they're experiencing some continual drift from him. Maybe you can relate with that. I know I can. And this drift is caused maybe by some misunderstandings about who Jesus is, uh, which leads to maybe some religious activity without really a lot of heart or investment in that religious activity. And then you get frustrated at the religious activity and the religious people around you and the whole system. And then you go, you don't go to church anymore. And then you're like, and then you experience some life crisis after that drift. And you're like, oh, I need to go back to church. And you go back to church. And it's the same experience over and over and over again. Because there's, because there's fundamentally some misunderstandings about who Christ is rather than what the church is about and what the people at church are about. Does that make sense? One of the most frustrating things I hear over and over again is I don't go to church because of the people. Well, duh, because we're all messed up. You don't go to church for me. You don't go to church for, for us. You go to church because of who? Thank you, because of Jesus, because Jesus is greater. He's, he's the example we're trying to get to, not the pastor on the stage. If you're trying to be like me, woo, you're in trouble. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> you're in trouble if you're trying to be exactly like me. You need to be like Jesus. Okay? And so, and so the writer of Hebrews is writing to them to, to kind of snap them out of this drift that they're experiencing. Like, I think if we were very honest, if we were to look at the whole of Hebrews, we could see our own lives kind of matching these people. We could, we could see our own lives matching these people in that they'll neglect things 
about their spiritual walk with Jesus? Anybody else miss a quiet time this week? Okay, just me. That's all right. You guys are holy. That's good. Just me missed a quiet time this week. Maybe, maybe they've drifted away from God just simply because life is busy. That never happened to nobody but me, I guess. What, what I'm trying to say is that the writer of Hebrews, instead of trying to answer every particular question that these, these people have, he's going to point them to something transcendent beyond those things. He's going to say over and over again that Jesus is greater. Don't go back to the old person that you used to be. Okay, so some of you are like, well, I go back to the old person, but I'm not as bad as I used to be. So isn't that good? I mean, kind of, but not really. The point is not, the point is not whether you were, you, it was, your, your going back was more dramatic or less dramatic. The point is that you got your eyes off of Jesus in the first place. And that's what Hebrews is all about. And, and really, at the, at the end of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is, this is what the writer will say. He'll say, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto who? Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Uh, the NIV is going to say, fixing our eyes on. I really like that, that phrase. Y'all heard that, that King and Country song? Fix my eye. Uh, uh, uh. Okay, I'm not going to do it. Y'all don't, Jeremy's the singer. Don't, don't, don't laugh at me, all right? But that's, that's the song that goes in my head. Every time I read this, I can't help but sing it. NIV says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the finisher, the author and the perfecter of your faith. And so if we can get our eyes on Jesus, then we can answer all of the accessory or secondary questions in our lives. He's the answer, and I don't like that answer. It grates in me because what I want to do is passively follow a rule. Oh, just me, okay. I want to passively follow a rule. I don't want to have to actively engage in a relationship. That's harder. It's harder to actively engage in a relationship and know who Jesus is and understand his heart. It's much easier just to understand that speed limit's 40 and you go 42 because you got a little leeway. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's much easier just to passively follow a rule than it is to actively engage in a relationship. And so I can see myself in, in, in this book. I can see myself here. And I want you to see yourself in this book. I want you to see yourself as being written to by the writer of Hebrews. Because when I experience a drift, it's, it's not because I've, I've gone out and, uh, and found a drug dealer and uh, you know, done black tar heroin or something like that. Yeah, thank you. It's, that's, not what, that's not what my drift looks like. You get what I'm saying? My drift looks like I'm angry at my kids for no reason. My drift, my drift looks like a snarky comeback at the people around me who I love the most. My drift looks like a little faster, you know what I'm saying, on the right foot. I'm a little quicker on the right foot to get around somebody and cut them off. Just my little, my little side mirror is beeping as I'm going around them because I'm a little too close. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, just me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting a little close to y'all today. I don't know. Maybe we're talking the same language. But I know that my drift doesn't look crazy. It looks subtle, but it's still drift. It's still drift from Jesus. And if I can fix my eyes on him, 
that I'm less prone to these things. Okay. Okay. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus for a little bit. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right. Let's go. We're going to jump right into chapter 2. Again, I told you chapter 1 is all about the angels and how Jesus is greater. Uh, Angels are are big and important. Uh, One thing to note is that when God talks about Jesus or talks to Jesus, there's implicitly some greater authority there. Like there's greater authority implied in Jesus than in the angels. And what all of chapter 1 is going to do is is reference the Old Testament prophets and and, and different books to prove that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now that's a big deal for for cultural Jews. That's who this is written to, cultural Jews. Uh, that's That's a big deal because the angels were revered. The angels were the ones who administered the law of God to Moses. They're the ones that carried it down to Moses. Okay, not, not physically, not like gold plates like, like John Smith. That's not what I'm talking about. If y'all know what I'm talking about at all right now. This, that's, that's where Mormon, Mormonism began was the Archangel Michael handed, delivered some plates. I think it's also very similar to what happened in Islam. Uh, is that Muhammad was given by an angel new revelation. So that's not what happened in the Old Testament. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the Jews culturally believed that the angels were the ones who physically delivered what God had spoken. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so the angels are revered. And so for someone to say that Jesus is greater than the angels, that he's not just another prophet, that he's not just another uh, uh, spirit like an angel, is a big deal for the Jews. That's a big deal. You're setting, you're setting Jesus apart from the get-go. And so Jesus is greater than even the angels because his message that he carried that he administered and that he secured, which is the gospel, is greater even still than the law. Okay? So the gospel, uh, Christ died for our sins and was? Ooh, someone's remembering. Buried. He rose again and was? Seen. Wow. Pastor would be proud. I'm not telling him that, though. I'm not telling him that y'all all quoted that, because uh, that, would, that would make his... Anyways, so... Christ died and was buried. He rose again and was seen. That simple message outweighs all 613 do's and don'ts that you find in Leviticus. All the regulations, all the laws are outweighed by that simple message that Jesus died for your sins and was buried. He rose again and was seen. Because the gospel, not the law, is the key to relationship with God. The law pointed us to what we needed, which was Jesus. Jesus is what we need. Okay, that's, that's chapter 1. We did that. Chapter 2 is where I want to look today because there are three aspects of Jesus' character that if I can fix my attention on and if you can fix your attention on this week, will do your heart good. If we can orient ourselves around Jesus, then everything else will fall into place. Maybe not immediately or right away, but progressively and over time. And that's still good. That's still good. In fact, we, we might call that discipleship here where an intentional leader would invest in your life and show you how to make Jesus more the center of your life so that everything else reorients around him. And so today, if we can fix our eyes on these aspects of Jesus, I think they'll resonate with you. I think they'll help you to guide your attention and your focus back on Jesus so you won't drift away as well. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're experiencing drift right now. Your, your eyes are drifting off as I'm talking. That's okay. That's okay. Well, you can go to the corner. Get yourself a quad shot. I think that's what Caleb Northington gets is four shots of espresso, which is crazy. I don't, that's too much. But go get some coffee. 
wake up here and let's, let's not drift away from what God is saying to us this morning. The first thing that I see about Jesus' character in Hebrews chapter 2 is that he's a champion who saves. Somebody say, a champion who saves. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Let's look there together. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Let's jump to verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Okay, these verses for us frame a picture of who Jesus is. One of the aspects of Jesus' character is that he is a champion who saves. And these are powerful verses to me. I told you it's kind of poetic. It's kind of a beautiful, beautifully written book. Um, don't get bogged down by the language. Essentially what Paul is saying is that Jesus has freed us. He suffered for you. He tasted death for you. It was fitting for him that he would do this because he, he does it for you. Don't be bogged down by the language. That's essentially what these verses are saying to us. And it's... It's, it's a beautiful picture to me of what Jesus is like because he's not just, he's not satisfied to simply be better than the angels, greater than the angels, and sit in heaven and dole out commands that he expects to be followed. Rather, he himself gets involved. He came to earth being made like a man, lowering his own station below that of the angels. This is crazy. For, let's just pause for just one moment. He on purpose, he on purpose put himself lower than the angels. Now he's still God, don't be confused, he's still God. Uh, and you see snaps of it, you see moments of it where he's like, all right, Ocean, quit it. And it's just like, oh, I'm sorry, and, you just, and it calms down, you know what I'm saying? You see moments like that where he tears a bread, piece of bread, five loaves, and it just keeps tearing. There's more every time he tears, which is weird. Has anybody else thought about that? I mean, how long is he sitting there? 5,000 people. He's just, just tearing. That's wild to me. That's wild to me. So much so that there's baskets left over at the end that they had, you know, some take-home lunches for him at the end with the disciples. That's good stuff. Okay? There, there, there's moments where Jesus sets himself aside. He is God. Where he tells demons to, to get out of people, and they just listen. No questions asked. They just listen. There's moments where you see that, but, but what he does on purpose is that he lowers his station and limits his power for a time so that he can be like us. Okay, maybe you're, maybe you're still not understanding what I'm saying. Uh, when I play basketball with my two-year-old, I'm LeBron James to her. You know what I'm saying? I come in the lane, I'll, I could dunk on her all day. She tries to shoot a shot, get out of here. I was Sean Bradley that so fast. Y'all who knew Sean Bradley is 7'6". Okay, maybe, maybe Yao Ming for you. Seven, what is he, five? Something like that, something crazy tall. Mutumbo, what was, I don't remember his last name. He's a very tall guy as well. Uh, that's how I am to Avalyn if I were to play basketball with her. Now, if I played basketball with her like that, you should call CPS. That's ridiculous. Okay, but when I play basketball with her, I'm limiting my own ability. 
I'm limiting my own power. I'm limiting the scope of my uh, presence on the court so that I can shoot a ball with my, with my two-year-old. Okay, does that make sense? That's what Jesus did for us. He limited his own power, set himself aside for a moment. Not that, not that he couldn't still dunk. You better believe I can still dunk. Not really. <laughs> not really. Not really. But he, he lowers himself in order to save me. And I, and I think that that's a really powerful message. I think that's really, really powerful. And here's the thing. It's not like I was being attacked by some outside force it's not like there was something outside of me that was impacting me and I'm sitting here innocent and I have to be rescued by him because I'm so innocent. Rather, Jesus came to rescue me from what's inside of me, which is sin. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Does my heart good to hear y'all say that? Um, some, some translations, instead of saying sinners, will say enemies. I like that. I like that. It gets the same idea across. That, that while you were far away, while you were at your very worst, not your Joel Osteen best, while you were at your very worst, Christ came and died for you. He deals with the root of the problem, not just the action that you commit with the motivation behind it, which is our sinful hearts. He deals with sin by granting me his own goodness, his own righteousness. And then he goes one further. And then he goes one further. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't just uh, uh, pleased to say sin is now finished. He goes one further and actually deals with the consequences or the penalty of sin. Somebody say sin equals death. That's the reality. Is that what happened in the Garden of Eden now impacts all of us. And it's not like we just sit back passively and we accept this curse of sin. Rather, we've joined in with Adam and Eve gladly and sinned ourselves. I don't know if, you, if, you, if you've heard that before or knew that, but that's the reality. It's not like you just receive sin and, okay, well, now I can't help it. No. You gladly joined in rebelling with Adam and Eve against God our Creator. And because we've done that, because we sinned, we now have a penalty due us, which is death. So Jesus, what it said in these verses that we just read, is that Jesus experiences death to fight and defeat it. Now this is nuts. I was thinking about this this week. Death is a tool used by Satan to bring about true death. Separation from God. See, we want to make death the thing. We want to make our physical death, that's where it's all over. We want to eat all the blueberries that we can. We want to eat all the kale that we can. We want to go on the keto and eat all the fat that we can. The carbs are the devil. We want to do all those things. Keto people, I love you. I'm praying for you. Uh, wow. I couldn't. Anyways, I'm praying for you. Uh, we, we, oh, wait, and even keto people can't eat blueberries, so I just also gave you another devil thing in there. So anyways, we, we're doing our best. We're doing our best to avoid death. All of us are. We exercise. Uh, we drive our car safely on the highway. Whatever it is that you do, you're avoiding death as much as possible, which is a good thing. I'm not saying you should run for that. But what I'm saying is that we want to make death the thing and we want to act like separation from God isn't a big deal. See, the devil understands that death isn't the real thing. The real thing 
is separation from God for eternity. That's true death. That's true death. And if the devil can get you to physical death without knowing a Savior, then he knows he's one. Death is not the thing. Death is a tool to get to the thing, which is eternal separation from God. So Jesus, our champion, tastes death to remove death from death. I got some confused eyes in here. Jesus tastes death to remove final death from physical death. Does that make sense? Paul quoting the prophets in 1 Corinthians 15:55 says, "Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting?" Because it no longer exists. Because those who are in Christ when they die, they experience now eternal life true life. And not just true life in heaven when we die, but true life here as we live. Because we have the Spirit in us. Amen? Jesus has removed death from death. Faith in Jesus Christ secures true life. That's good. Romans 6.23 tells us this. For the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Jesus is our champion. Somebody say Jesus is our champion. He fought for you on the cross and in the grave. Because he he couldn't be immobilized by death. Because if sin equals death, and he lived a sinless life, then he couldn't be immobilized by death. So when he goes to deal with death, he's able to defeat what Satan binds us to, because he's not bound to it. Isn't that crazy? He removes death from death. But now guess what? He continues to fight for you. This is what's even more crazy, is he has sent Holy Spirit to live in you, to guide you in everything. He has given you spiritual gifts to further combat the enemy. We want to look at gifts like, oh, this is just a little cherry on top. Thank you, Jesus, for this. I appreciate that. No, this, these are your tools. These are your tools, along with the spiritual disciplines, reading your word, being in prayer, having accountability, right? Memorizing scripture. Along with the spiritual disciplines in your life, the spiritual gifts are your tools to combat the enemy. Oh, y'all didn't hear me. Okay, let's talk about it. God gave us gifts like hospitality and administration, mercy, Giving, leadership, prophecy, teaching, faith, service, encouragement, discernment, and evangelism. And the list could go on. And some of y'all are like, what? I was already awesome. What are you talking? That's immediately where our heart goes. I was already very hospitable before I met Jesus. I was already very encouraging before I knew Jesus. My, my parents taught me to be... Here's, here's what our hearts like to do is we like to default back to the old way of being. And we like to say that all the good things that we did in our life came because of me. I did the good stuff that happened. And all the bad stuff that happened, well, you don't know my teacher. I mean, if you knew my teacher, you'd know I had to cuss at her. You don't know my boss. If you knew my boss, whoo, different conversation. If you knew Patricia, you know what I mean? If you knew what she said, we want to act like all the bad things that happened in our life are outside of us. Okay, no witnesses to this. Okay, 
That's okay. We want to act like all the bad stuff is outside of us and all the good stuff is because of us. And what Scripture says is that the good things come from God. And that you and other people are part of the problem. (laughs) So here's the thing, is that he gives us these spiritual gifts to combat the enemy. Now maybe you've already possessed some of these things. Maybe you have talents and skills. Like maybe you're, maybe you're really good at administration, just kind of innately. You, you, you kind of have a, a, an eye for details. Maybe you're a really good encourager already. That, that, that's very possible. I'm not saying that's impossible. It is possible to be some of these things that I've just listed. But the reality is that when God enters your heart via the Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, those talents and abilities, they get amplified in power and effectiveness by the Spirit. Is that, is that making sense? So maybe you already had some administration skill. It's ramped up now because you need to be so good at your job that you're going to get all the money possible so you can send it back to God's kingdom and that you can grow and impact other people. Does that make sense? So if we're on mission for Christ, which is to make disciples who then God's going to increase the portion of the gift that he's given you. If you're not on mission, you're doing it in your own strength. Period. And that was convicting for me this week. I mean, it just was. It just was. Because if I'm not doing what God has called me to do, which is to build relationships, make disciples who make disciples, and I'm doing it in my own strength. Which is why we care so deeply about going and teaching other churches to be about God's mission. It's not merely just to get people in the church building. It's to invest in people's lives. It's to make disciples. And if we're on the mission, then God's going to supernaturally... I don't know how it happens. Maybe you can explain that to me. I don't know how it happens. But I just know that the Spirit is in you and that He provides you these things that we don't have apart from ourselves, okay? Or just in ourselves. Jesus comes and He amps up the abilities you already have and maybe he gives you ones you didn't already possess. Does that make sense? Or he'll, or he'll, through the process of discipleship, through the process of growing towards him, he's going to begin to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He's going to begin to uh, develop you. He's going to begin to develop you in strengths and areas that you didn't already possess. We need to stop viewing our spiritual gifts like we've always just been such wonderful people and that we're gifting God with ourselves. You're welcome, Lord. Mm. Mm. Ain't nobody seen anybody like me before. And you ain't never seen nobody with the administration skills like I've got. If you know me, you'd be laughing right now. No, it, rather it's the other way around, that God gives us, that he gives us portions of things that we don't possess, and that he wants us to turn around, build relationships with others, and utilize the gifts that he's given us. So if you look at your gift as, well, hospitality, it's not prophecy. I mean... <laughs> That's, that's a big one. That's a cool one. Well, we need hospitable people. Oh my gosh. Have you guys watched the, the dialogue this past week and a half? We need some hospitable people. We need some encouragers out there. I mean, y- y'all know what I'm talking about, right? We don't, have, we don't have to go into the details, but you guys have watched the vitriol back and forth. And it's not stopping. So we need people empowered by God to build relationships to impact people on a people level and stop yelling at one another. We need hospitable people. That's a spiritual gift. 
Stop looking at your gift as not as impactful or as important as someone else's. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. Take your eyes off yourself and fix it on him. It's because he's our champion and he's greater than our sin. He fights for us and he uses us to fight with him. That's crazy. He uses us to fight with him. Not flesh and blood fighting. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual fights against the devil. And he's right alongside of us. He'll use you and your particular mm, you-ness. Your uniqueness. The you that you are. He's going to use you to reach somebody if you'll just link up with him, if you'll fix your eyes on him. And he'll increase those gifts and your boldness if you're on mission for him. This means something to me. This means that I'm valuable. In God's eyes, I'm valuable. Even if nobody else thinks so, he does. That's a big deal. I'm useful. Uh, Men won't say this, especially to their wives, but we need to be used. We do. We need to be used. Uh, uh, Men who are bored and are too idle at home get into some dumb stuff. Men need to be used. Men need to be useful. You need to go cut the grass. You need to go, you need to go make your house look nicer. You need to be, you need to be a creator or a fixer or, or you need to do something with your hands. And men need that. Okay? And so I like that God looks at me and says, you're useful to my kingdom work. I like that. That means he likes me. That means he thinks that I'm cool. And guess what? He thinks the same of you. And so this brings me to the next idea, the next aspect of Jesus, is that he's a brother who's not ashamed. He's a brother who's not ashamed. Hebrews 2.11 For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This one was powerful for me this week. Like, I know I don't measure up to Jesus. I know that. I I know that I can't work hard enough to gain his perfect goodness. I know that I've hurt people, so many people. I know that I've hurt people by the mistakes that I've made in my life, the things that I've done against them and against God. I know that by myself I am unworthy and don't deserve anything from God yet. Yet. Jesus didn't go to the cross begrudgingly or with great reluctance. Instead, he went willingly knowing that he would save many to call them his brothers and his sisters. I want you to know the good that this did my heart this week. I've been praying for my own family. Um, There are some members of my family, not Rachel, not my wife, not my girls. Um, There are some members of my family who I have been praying for because I've just been burdened by them and for them. I want victory for them. I, I want all the good in life to go their way. And, and when I watch their behavior, when I watch them make poor choices, when, when they offend me in deep, painful ways, I find myself creating distance from them. I find myself not making efforts to reach out to them, to make phone calls, to attend things that we're doing together because I don't know how to cope. Uh, I'm frustrated. I'm angry at you. I don't know what to say about it. 
I don't want to be near you, I don't want to be by you, I don't want to talk to you. And I was reminded powerfully this week that Christ did not do that for me. Instead, he calls me his brother. And he turns my heart towards him because of that truth. Like, like when I think about the kindness of God, not the judgment, we know that that's real, but when I think about the kindness of God despite the judgment, it turns my heart towards him. Because I'm much worse than my, families are, my family members are to me. I am much worse to God than they are to me. And he doesn't walk away from me at all. In fact, he pursued me and continues to pursue me while I drift. This, was, this warmed my heart up this week, and it also cut me like real deep. <laughs> because now I have to make some phone calls this week. Because now I have to make some apologies to people who have not apologized to me yet. Well, but you... It's not about that. It's not how Christ did it for me. And so there's this amazing scene. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to say it. Les Miserables. Can I, just, can I say it very American? Can I say it that way? You guys know what I'm talking about? Les Mis or Les Miserables? I'm not going to even go the French route. I tried it with Jeremy this week and we, we both laughed at me because I was dumb. Les Miserables, there's this amazing moment in this, in this novel. Uh, you may know it as Les Mis, as, as the musical. Um, I'm talking about the 1937 well-known Orson Welles radio drama. Anybody else on that one? No, just, just me. I'm, I was the goofy one that grew up with Christian parents and couldn't watch TV. Anyways, 1937, Orson Welles directed his in fact his first real directorial work if you know who Orson Welles is, is we're going way back here but he, he directed film um, and in 1937 he did a radio drama of Les Mis of Les Miserables it wasn't a singing it was it was the actual like like play um, if you don't know the story at all what's happening in the story is is Jean Valjean uh, he, he was recently released from prison I'm going to lead you up to the scene where I'm talking about here he's recently released from prison which he was put in kind of unjustly. He had a five-year sentence that he was kind of unjustly put in there. And then for another 14 years, because the prison uh, 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 warden is kind of corrupt, he forcefully conscripts Jean Valjean for 14 additional years past his five years. Jean Valjean has now been in prison for 19 years. And I'm not talking about prison where you got three squares a day and outside time. I'm talking about you're a galley slave who's breaking up brick in the quarry. And you don't have any living conditions, and you, and you sleep in a dark, dank place that, that like breeds disease and nastiness. That's the kind of prison I'm talking about. Jean Valjean, 19 years in this prison, a galley slave. He's released, and he has nowhere to go. Further, he's a convict. He's got papers to prove it. He stumbles around looking for a place to go, searching for an inn. No one will trust him. No one will hire him. And it begins to storm outside. He sees an inn, or what he thinks is an inn, and he stumbles upon it. It's actually a church. And he comes to the door and he gives his whole spiel like he's supposed to. I'm a convict these 19 years, and it's, you know, it's old, old school radio drama is where I'm coming from. I'm a convict these 19 years, and he gives on his whole thing. And then the priest, just without question, lets him in, despite his long spiel. Jean Valjean, sitting with the priest, realizes, oh, I've never given you my name, priest. He's sitting there warming by the fire while the priest 
continues to shoo away the women who are very worried about this convict who's now in their house. And he says, no, no, just get the, get the, no, get the nice silver plates out. Don't get the, get the guest plates. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Don't get the plastic plates. Don't get the paper plates. Get the nice plates because we've got guests here. Y'all know what I'm talking about. That's what the priest told him to go. Get go with the silver plates. This guy's here. He's here. We, we, we need to treat him with, with kindness and respect. And while they're sitting warming by the fire, Jean Valjean realizes, oh, a priest, I never gave you my name. And the priest says, oh, I already knew your name. And Jean Valjean says, you, you did. And the priest says, yes, you're my brother. I linked this radio drama for you in version notes. If you want 30 minutes to kind of giggle but also be kind of convicted and, and, and also be encouraged to know that God loves you, listen to this radio drama this week. It's good. And if you know the story of Les Miserables, then you'll know that after this moment, Jean Valjean's life changes completely. After he's welcomed in, after the priest gives him a name, brother, after the priest loves him despite his wrongdoing, Jean Valjean's life changes forever. It's not because the priest lectured him into change. It's because he loved him. Romans 2.4 says this, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? I'm reading from the NLT here. I like this version, just the way it says it. Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? I like that. Jesus is a brother who is unashamed of you, and he's greater than your doubts. He meets me where I am with love and relationship. That transforms me. And I hope it transforms you. I no longer want to sin because of his kindness. I no longer want to neglect, want to drift from him because I want his continual presence. We've got to live out of that motivation. That's where we have to live out of because, because his kindness leads us to repentance. And if we can stop viewing God like the cosmic killjoy or like the hall monitor who's like ready to pounce on, like just walking like by you, you know what I'm saying? The hall monitor who's waiting for you to mess up in some way. If we can stop viewing God that way and rather as our brother who's unashamed of us, one who would call us family, then we're going to live out of that relationship. That's the difference between religion and relationship. Religion tells you to go do these things and you'll be right with God. Relationship tells us that you're already right with me. Now hang out with me. Why would, you, why would you go anywhere else? I love you this way. Hang out with me. Why would you do anything else? I love you. Hang out with me. And that's Jesus' call for us. This brings us to our last idea. He's a priest who can help. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful what? In things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, this is important to understand because Jesus doesn't just suffer because he needed to learn something. It's not like God sent him to earth because he needed to learn a lesson. 
That's not, that's not what was happening. Rather, we need to know that he knows what we know. Let me say it again because I just confused everybody. Jesus suffered on our behalf because we need to know that he knows how we know. He humbled himself to experience the pains of life, the pain of loss, the pain of betrayal, the pain of disappointment, the pain of physical aging, the pain of death. And Jesus has experienced these things, not because he needed to learn something, but because he needs us to know that he knows. He understands. And because he suffered and was tempted like you and me, but without sin, he's able now to not condemn us for the way that we live. Did y'all hear that? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Wow. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. It's because he's a priest who can help. He's lived it like you've lived it. And so for me, there's always this question in my mind about God. What must he think of me? I mean, he must think that I'm the worst, right? I mean, he has to. Look at me. He must think that I'm so stupid for doing that or this over and over and over again. Right? I mean, he has to. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. And somebody needs to hear that today. He doesn't. I love this. He doesn't just talk about truth. He is truth. He doesn't just talk about forgiveness. He grants it. He doesn't just talk about healing and relationship with God. He secured acceptance and relationship with God through faith in him. That's good. So there's no condemnation. He knows how hard it is to be you. And that's not a joke. I'm not trying to say something silly here. God knows how hard it is to be you. And so immediately what we'll do is go, well, we don't have it as hard as a missionary in Africa. And then we'll say stuff to ourselves like, say, I should never whine because because people around the world don't don't have it as good as I do. Okay, well, that might be true, but but that's not even the point. We want to take the attention off of what God is doing in us and for us off the glorious truth that there is no condemnation, and we want to start making it about like qualifications. Who's suffering more than we are or less than we are? Stop. That's not what it's about. He knows how tough it is for them to be them too. And he meets you right where you are regardless. It's not about the amount or degree of toughness. It's that God knows you. It's that he loves you. It's that he can help you. He's a priest who can help. And he's greater than your situation. Some of y'all are in some tough situations. I know that. I understand that. And he's greater than that situation. And he can help you in it. He can help you through it. He's provided this family here to walk alongside of you. To pray for you. To care for you in times when you need it. He himself offers himself to you, for you. He's a priest who can help. Okay. So what do we do with this today? <laughs> That's always my, it's always my question. What do I do with information about God? Well, number one, we need to reorient ourselves around these, these truths. One of these aspects, or maybe all three, 
are resonating with your heart today, and they should. One, even if you're nailing your Christian life, which is possible, awesome. It's awesome to be doing great in your Christian life right now. Even if you're nailing it, one of these ought to remind you and stir you up to more. So let's reorient ourselves around these aspects of God's character today, that Jesus is a champion who saves, who's greater than your sin. That he's a brother who's not ashamed, is greater than your doubts and loves you regardless. That he is a priest who can help and does. He's greater than your situation. Let's reorient our our minds around that and then let's do some stuff with that this week. Some of us have some secret sin patterns in our lives that we're continuing to hold on to because we think he's ashamed of us. He's not. We think that someone else will be ashamed of us or maybe we're ashamed of us. God isn't ashamed of you. It's time to come clean though. You know the story about the, uh, uh, the, the woman who gets caught in adultery with the guy. And they bring her up to Jesus and are like, Jesus, we found her in the act. She's the problem. Where's the guy, by the way? Just, that's weird. That's a weird deal. Here she is, Jesus. What are you, you going to do? And Jesus calmly says, he without the first sin. Cast it, you know what I'm saying? If you don't got no sin, cast the stone. And they all drop the stones and they walk away. And then the best part of the story, here's what's so frustrating about those people who left, is they missed the best part. They missed the best part of the story. The best part is not that they dropped the rocks and walked away. The best part is that Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Jesus is not ashamed of you or what you've done. So you shouldn't be either. It's time to open up and share about who we are and what we are with the people around us. You need to get in a disciple group if you're not already in one. Because there is going to be a safe place where you can conversate that way. Your disciple leader wants to hear these things from you because they want to help guide you, not because they want to judge you and write down all the things that you've done wrong so they have a list. That's silly. They don't want to do that. They want to help you. They want to pray with you. They want to be there to help and hear you. And sometimes just to say it out loud is freeing. I know that's true in my own life. So be open. Be honest with those in your group. Don't, don't hide any longer. Hiding is not freedom. Hiding is not freedom. Being out in the open is. So I'm challenging you. Be vulnerable this week. Be open with somebody. Some of you are in autopilot this morning. You're not engaged at home or at work or at school or in anywhere. You're not engaged. You're just doing what you do because you've always done it. Maybe you're paralyzed by indecision uh, because you can't see what's next in your life. Maybe you're too afraid of what might happen if you go for next. Does that make sense? If you want to go for the next thing, you don't know what it, what it will mean. You're too f- afraid to go forward. Listen, Jesus is greater than your situation. He's going to work out the details if you can fix your eyes on him. And all of us don't like that answer, but it is the answer. It is the answer. If we'll make incremental movements towards Christ... He will guide our path. He will guide your path where you are. Stop trying to do it on your own strength. That's why you're paralyzed. That's why you're not moving. That's why you can't make decisions about things. But if we can just orient ourselves around the truth that Jesus is greater than our situation, he's going to work out the details. If I can just get on mission with him, then everything will start to spin around that truth. 
Some of y'all need to join a disciple group today. I said that. Some of y'all, some of y'all need to go to the welcome desk or someone in the front here today and, and be a part of that. Some of you guys need to join a church. This church. Come join this church today. Be a part of this fellowship. Be a part of this family. We love you. We want to see you grow. We call that discipleship. We don't just expect you to come here and then sit every Sunday for the next 50 years. We want more for your life. We want more for your life. We want to hand you a piece of this ministry. We want you to impact other people through the relationships that you build. We want to show you how to do that. We want to show you how to be the best possible disciple of Christ that you can be. Come be a part of us. Join us today. Some of us need to call some family members this week. I know I do. You have a tremendous opportunity with your family to impact them and to show them Jesus. You have a tremendous opportunity to show forgiveness where it's not deserved. Because that's what Christ did for you. Be about your families this week. Show them love, show them grace. It's hard to be them. Even when I think it's not. (laughs) You get what I'm saying? And Jesus understands that about them and loves them regardless. Some of us today need to start a relationship with Christ. You've walked in here and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior today. Well, listen, he's greater than everything. Somebody say, Jesus is greater. I need to hear it again. Mm, It's good. He's greater than anything. And And what he wants is your heart. He doesn't want your moral activity and your actions. He wants your heart. He loves you. He loves you. Start a relationship with him today. Start a relationship with him today. We're going to pray just for a couple minutes, and then in a moment I'll, I'll lead you in a prayer if you'd like to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Let's, let's bow our heads and spend some moments just asking God what's next for us, okay? Father, thank you for today. Thank you so much for your provision for me in my own life. Man, help me to not forget how good you are. Help me to know, help me to know that you're with me. Help me to know that all I have to do is reorient myself around the truth that you love me, the truth that you're for me, that you're a priest who can help, that you get my situation better than I do, that you have something more for me in the future if I'll just link up with you and help me to fix my eyes up on you this week so that I can serve you and love you better. I'm praying for those in this room, God, who needed to hear something about you today, something about how good you are in their lives. I'm praying that their heart would be stirred up by your kindness to turn their eyes towards you to serve you this week. I pray that we'd get rid of the things that that really don't matter, the secondary things in our lives, and I pray that we would not go back to the people that we used to be, but rather we'd press forward to be the people that you've called us to be, disciple makers. Give this church more influence, increase increase us here we have an opportunity to impact our community and impact this state and impact this nation if we'll make disciples help us to realize help us to realize that it doesn't happen unless you've gifted unless you've granted us the power to do so help us to work and and walk in that mission God give us give us 
Give us direction today. Some of us need to know what's next. Give us direction. Give us, give us a new sense of your, of your presence in our lives so that we can press forward to know you and press forward to know what's next in our lives. Help us to run the race with endurance this week. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior today, if you've not started a relationship with him, then just follow after me in this prayer. And you can do that today. And you need to let somebody know at the front or at the welcome desk today. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you that you love me even when I have not measured up to you. I've not been perfect. I've not done everything right. But I know that you have and that you've removed the penalty of my sin, death. That you've dealt with my sin on the cross, in the grave, and through your resurrection. I know that I sin, but I know that you are greater than my sin. I want to start a relationship with you today. I want to live like you lived, and I want to be like you were. I want to walk the way that you walked. I want to, I want to join in knowing you like, like you've called me to do. I desire to be like you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for being a champion who can save. In Jesus' name, amen.